This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. We will also explore threats to meaningful engagement in sport and movement culture practices and ask questions about what we can learn about the human condition through our involvement in sport. The guests are leading scholars in human and social sciences of sport who will share their explorations in a scholarly as well as a personal context. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. I am delighted to introduce today's episode, which focuses on understanding how gender informs meaning in sport. I feel that this is such an important topic that it should have featured in this podcast already a long time ago. Indeed, sport is a very gendered institution, and although there has been a lot of effort to tackle gender-based inequalities in the past few decades, a lot of work certainly remains to be done. In today's episode, we explore how gender identity intersects with athletic identity with the focus on women's martial arts. We discuss what discourses are dominant in the sporting spaces, and how these impact those who are unable or unwilling to accept and live according to these discourses. We then move on to exploring the possibilities of alternative meanings, discourses and practices of sport, and finally discuss whether and how sporting spaces that are not based on a binary understanding of gender can be organized, as well as the ethical imperative to organize sporting spaces that are inclusive and safe for all. Our guest has completed several interesting research projects on gender in sport. She completed her PhD in sports sciences at the University of Jyväskylä in Finland, which focused on understanding women's identity negotiations in competitive judo cultures. After defending her PhD, She continued working as a postdoc researcher at the University of Uvascula in a project that focused on tackling discrimination against gender and sexual minorities in sport and physical education contexts. She then moved on to the School of Sport and Service Management at the University of Brighton and currently works as a postdoc researcher in a project titled Transforming Gender Boundaries in Sport, which is funded by the Finnish Cultural Foundation. Welcome, Dr. Anna Kavora, and thank you so much for joining me for today's interesting and very important discussions. Hi, Nora. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted that we are we are now here discussing this, and we have talked about this already a long, a long time ago, and so 
now we finally get going and I cannot emphasize enough how much I feel that this is a very important topic to address and, and for us to understand meaning in sport, we always have to be thinking about this gendered element of, of meaning and, and uh, how our cultural practices also shape those meanings. So I'd be very delighted to hear a little bit about how you have become a gender scholar and uh, well, a sport, sport scholar, of course, as well. But your research in the past 10 years already has always been addressing these gender issues. So perhaps a little bit about the background story of, of how you became a gender researcher. Yeah, sure. So, yes, I am always a little bit hesitant to call myself a gender scholar because uh, as you said, my background is in sports science and uh, majoring in uh, sports psychology. And uh, I think it was uh, sometime during my, towards the end of my master's studies, when I started realizing that uh, this focus on um, performance alone, that sometimes like mainstream sports psychological theories are all about, especially when it is done in a way that neglects the context and the situational characteristics of the individual, such as gender, race, class, uh, religion, and, uh, and so on. Like, um, this way of work does not interest me that much. And uh, I became especially interested in gender. I think my interest like also comes from my personal experiences. My experiences, uh, for example, of being a female athlete in the male domain of martial arts, but also experiences that go way back before that. Experiences of, uh, of a girl growing up in the patriarchal culture of Greece, for example. Yeah, and so you already mentioned that you, you're a martial artist and, and a high-level martial artist, I have to add there. And in your PhD research, you took this, took advantage of being an insider in the martial arts culture and, and then being able to do this research as, uh, from the insider perspective a little bit as well. So perhaps you can talk a little bit about uh, that work that you started doing in your PhD and and the research and the findings as well. Yeah, so basically, like, it started as an exploration of my own, I don't know, personal questions, let's say. Like, for example, I was wondering, like, how come in most uh, places that I have trained, like, there are only very few women. Sometimes I am the only one. Like, why women, like... Uh, often like uh, drop out like uh, from martial arts or don't even like come to try it and uh, so on. So I was in the beginning interested in this, uh, in these questions when I started my, my PhD. Yeah, at that time there weren't that many studies available on uh, at least like uh, psychological studies on uh, gender in uh, martial arts. There were some sociological investigations that were like uh, discussing the the higher the constraints for women in this kind of like um, hierarchical uh, system of uh, of gender in uh, sport. How, for example, gender stereotypes are um, like uh, saving the experiences of like uh, 
of uh, women and the strategies that they have to to employ in order to kind of adapt and succeed in this like a uh, male uh, in this male domain so i based my study on interview data mostly or an ethnographic data but mostly interview from interviews from uh, finland and from greece and um, yeah interviews with uh, female judo athletes and uh, yeah while i started looking at the at uh, i wanted i was interested in the beginning at the strategies that successful uh, successful let's say female athletes have used to adapt in this male domain and to succeed in their careers that was like my initial idea when i started but it ended up being more complex than that. Like I mapped out a complex system of discourses that athletes draw upon when they make sense of their experiences. So at the end, I wrote about that. I ended up writing about the cultural discourses and how this shaped the experiences of women in, uh, in martial arts and how they also, they shape the ways that we uh, kind of perform and negotiate our identities in sport. Yeah, and you already mentioned the word discourses and cultural discourses. And I'm sure that for some listeners this is very familiar, but perhaps not so much for others. So if we talk a little bit about discursive approaches, so how does that inform how we think about um, identities what you looked at and also what how we think about meaning in sport which would be the topic of our podcast yeah so when i say uh cultural discourses like um i am uh, drawing from a foucauldian understanding of discourse so i mean like um sets of knowledge and uh, practices that uh, shape our ways of thinking for example, like uh, discourses about motherhood, uh, shape our understanding of like who or what is a mother, who is a good mother, and so on. Like um, discourses, sport and uh, athletic performance discourses, shape our understanding of uh, who counts as an athlete, who is a good athlete, who is a successful and elite athlete, and uh, so on. Uh, discourses about femininity, who counts as a feminine woman, and so on. Yeah. So all these mm -hmm. uh, uh, these discourses uh, shape our ways of uh, thinking and uh, feeling about the world and about ourselves and about others. And these discourses, of course, they are uh, cultural in the sense that they might be different discourses in different times and places. For example, different discourses in the East and the West, in different uh, countries or in different, different historical periods. And uh, these discourses are also like uh, multiple in the sense that um, uh, we can come across like several and sometimes competing discourses. But uh, some of them will always be more accessible or more privileged, more valued than others yeah and 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 so also the way that we like um that we construct and negotiate the our identities like in this in this uh, framework identity is something uh, 
fluid. So something that we, you know, we take up pieces from these uh, discourses uh, and we construct our identity and it is always like a subject of uh, negotiation because the discourses around us are also like sifting. So it's not... Mm -hmm. It kind of this view rejects the essentialist essentialist view of identity as something like uh, fixed and uh, rigid that resides within the individual. Yeah, so we are always negotiating and trying to figure out how we position ourselves when we have these conflicting discourses. And you already mentioned possibly conflicting discourses that surround what it means to be an athlete or a good athlete and and what it means to be a woman or or a feminine woman. So perhaps you can talk a little bit about these conflicts or or these negotiations that you were looking into in your research. Yeah, so I can maybe like uh, try to summarize the results, like the main findings of my PhD in a very simplified uh, way. Uh, when I try to map the discourses that uh, female judo athletes draw upon in Finland and in Greece to kind of make sense of their selves and their experiences, I found certain cultural differences, let's say, but also uh some similarities and if we start from the differences for example it was very different the way that um, uh, athletes in the two countries um related or positioned themselves in uh, f this femininity discourses so for example the kind of understandings of like who counts as a feminine woman was uh, these understandings were very rigid in Greece. And uh, so the young, especially the younger athletes, they were very worried about are they still feminine if they are doing this kind of uh, often labeled as masculine sport of judo and is like lifting weights, for example, that, you know, like uh, elite athletes do, is it somehow going to uh, make them less feminine? And as you can imagine, this also constrain their their performances. I think because if they are like worried of like uh, lifting weights or like doing a proper training before because of you know like being afraid of uh, having extra muscle because this might be considered in the culture as not feminine. So they were this kind of worries yeah. in the in the talks of like the Greek, especially the young Greek like uh, female judo athletes. While this was not at all like almost at all in the worries of Finnish female athletes, because I think the cultural discourses of femininity in Finland are more uh, flexible and fluid. Yeah, feminine woman can mean many things, can be many mm. things, and uh, they couldn't imagine how this could uh, contradict with their, you know, like with them doing judo. Yeah. So in, in that sense, like uh, in that sense, the Finnish context was maybe like a little bit uh, healthier let's say for young female athletes but um, allowed for allowed for example for you know like um, multiple expressions of uh, femininity 
and uh, combining those with uh, being an athlete. But um, I also found in my study certain similarities in the two countries. For example, like uh, almost all the athletes that participated in my study, uh, in a way or another, they drew on uh, this course that uh, I called in my dissertation like the female biological inferiority discourse so especially when they wanted to explain why there aren't that many women doing judo like they like draw on explanations these kind of uh, dominant explanations of uh, uh, women by nature are not i don't know good enough for judo that men are stronger by nature and yeah yeah Women are like uh, feeling pain easier and uh, get hurt easier and uh, these kind of like uh, explanations. And then when I was asking about themselves, so how can you, so how have you managed all these years and you have overcome the injuries and uh, you train hard and and so on. And uh, uh, they were like saying, uh, but I was born differently. I was always a tomboy, and so on. Uh-huh. Yeah. So this kind of this kind of explanations, and of course, like this is not to blame women, but we are like uh, like brought up in this discourse that uh, women are by nature more fragile, and uh, men are by nature stronger, more aggressive, more competitive, are more natural fighters. So right. So yeah, yeah. We discussed that, I guess, a few times over over the years, and I find it quite interesting that when I was doing this research with recreational runners in China, that who were, for example, training to run a marathon or a half marathon, also they would draw. Even if we are not talking about elite sport, we are talking about recreational running. That often it comes up that they are somehow exceptional. That the typical woman doesn't have that in her that they would get up in the morning and go running for 10 kilometers and then go to work so that they are somehow in opposition or very different from the so-called average woman or or a normal woman so this kind of separating yourself from women in general was also quite prevalent in these recreational and non-elite uh, runners yeah, exactly. So, so we see how how strong, how dominant this discourse is, and it's like maybe we can also say that it is like I don't want to use the word like uh, global, but we meet this discourse in uh, many cultural contexts. Yeah. It seems it's it just shows how powerful how powerful it is. Yeah, yeah. Go go on with your findings. I interrupted you a little bit. Yeah, no, I think that this was like the the main findings. And then, you know, like I ended up writing about how we female athletes with the ways that we perform our identities, because, you know, like when these discourses are, when these discourses are available to us, we also like uh, perform our identities in a certain way in order to become accepted and uh, succeed in this cultural context and we often end up reproducing 
this, the same discourses, the same gender stereotypes that are there to oppress us. So I ended up writing about this, about how female elite athletes often end up with the way they, we talk, the way we, the practices like we draw upon, the ways we perform our identity, how we end up like reproducing these gender stereotypes, which might be a good strategy for, yeah, like becoming accepted in a male domain, but it doesn't help either towards like gender equality. Would you see some kind of um, resistant discourses or alternative understandings that, that the female athletes would draw on to, to make sense of their experience or... Or would you say that the stories that you heard in your research were very much shaped by the dominant ideologies or in the dominant discourses of uh, high-level sport? Well, of course, there are always like alternative uh, discourses and discourses of resistance. But uh, I found those discourses in a more like now I'm not talking only about my PhD, but like uh, I'm talking about yeah. you know like the different projects that I have worked like within the past 10 years, but I found these alternative discourses mostly in, let's say, non-elite spaces. Yeah. Like somehow, somehow in elite sport, this uh, uh, dominant, these essentialist understandings of uh, gender are more powerful. And then there are spaces of resistance, but uh, somehow these exist outside of the elite sport system. So maybe we can talk about those alternative discourses and and different ways that gender might be then constructed in in these non-elite contexts. If if you have some thoughts on that, yeah. For example, like um, there are contexts that exist outside of the elite uh, system. Like I am talking about community organized uh, sports spaces, uh, queer sports spaces like uh, leftist sports spaces and uh, and so on and um, in this in these sports sports spaces that exist outside of the of the elite sports system there can be a let's say an exploration of non-binary ways of uh, organizing sport for example one thing and also like uh, exploring different like um, Let's say meanings for sport in general, like, uh, I mean, you have written a lot about that in your work, about how, like, this elite sport or sport for health is not that maybe that viable anymore, or it doesn't make sense for all people. And uh, I totally agree with that. And then these spaces allow for exploration of other meanings, I think. So, for example, doing sport for solidarity or you know, exploring other performances of gender through sport. Yeah, I I think that would be what you said about doing sport for solidarity and, and when you include politics and, and, and this challenge to the gender binary, those would be some of those spaces where where this logic of sport is, is very much challenged. So maybe you can talk a little bit more about those spaces and, and and the work that you are doing around those things at the moment? Well, I don't know if I have like uh, that much to say right now because I am just starting my 
an ethnographic exploration of like uh, such spaces, particularly of trans-inclusive uh, sports spaces, right now. So I am in the first uh, months of my of my this new project, and uh, I just started the data collection. I don't have any findings to to share. But uh, let's say from my experiences uh, so far of visiting such uh, spaces and from the first data that I have, I can say that like there are really interesting, nice like uh, stuff going on there that maybe strategies that we can that we could explore if we can take you know like because right now we all you know we all come to understand that for example these like uh, gender categories in sport are not working that well anymore we come to understand that with these rigid categories we exclude like many people more people than we we thought like some years ago so yeah. they even kind of overlap with human rights at some point. So in these spaces, but so we come to realize that, but we cannot, we are having trouble on thinking alternatives. We have, you know, like, uh, it is hard for all of us to imagine sport organized differently in a non-gender way or in a non-performance orientated way. Or it is, it is hard for us to imagine how it could be done differently. And, uh, and these spaces, I think, they allow a, a window into that because there are, you know, like interesting alternative stuff that have been going on there for years that are not so, have not been very visible because like they exist outside of the dominant sport culture, but they have been going on for years and like they can allow, like they, they haven't been researched much so far but now they can allow a window towards like these alternative practices Mm. yeah just like you said it's quite difficult for us to imagine what sport could be if it's not constructed within this uh gender binary and and like this performance oriented culture as well can you can you think of examples of some of these practices or or the ways that sport is is organized in in these spaces to maybe help us imagine wh- how things could be different. Yeah, well, uh, well, I really liked. Um, um, I can say about uh, you know, like a few months ago, uh, I was at an anti-fascist martial arts tournament in the UK, mm-hmm. and um, I really liked the way that it was like organized in. Um, like, uh, of course, they had also like uh, uh, visible feminist and trans inclusive like uh, politics. So it was like uh, it was in the already in the announcement of the event that these are like the the values and principles that this event is organized based on inclusion and uh, feminist politics and uh, and so on. But um, like in actual like uh, practice of how the competition was was organized, like so the the sport participants when they were filling the registration form, they could of course they were like writing like 
because they were like several martial arts disciplines for which you could participate. So you would, you know, like state your martial art discipline, like your age, your weight category, how many years of experience you have. And then you would mm -hmm. like choose your preference in terms of, of gender or against which gender, let's say, you would like to to compete against and there were people that they were writing uh -huh. you know like i want to compete against like men or against women or i don't mind at all both right. i don't mind and then they were trying to to create a nice match for everybody so i think that went really well there were like uh, many you know like mixed uh, gender fights that happened and it was it went really well and there were like many non-binary people participating in the event so i think that was like a nice uh -huh. example did you compete yourself or you were no no i was like i refereed a bit <laughs> yeah, uh -huh. yeah yeah i refereed a bit i coached a bit this was also funny this was uh -huh. funny because i was like <laughs> it is it is funny how i like i realized how this you know like Competing these courses are also like, like uh, shaping my <laughs> my coaching. Like I don't know, it was like uh, like sometimes I was of course like shouting for the person that I was cornering to, like I I, w I wanted him to win, so I was shouting, yeah, like uh, to this and to that, and you know, like I was like uh, maybe like. Uh, you know, like shouting, like wanting him to win and kind of giving like per performance orientated like instructions and so on. <laughs> and mm -hmm. then I was, yeah. I was like realizing like the context and that we are, you know, like the aim of this event uh, is also, you know, like to get the experience, to have fun. It is, you know, like a solidarity orientated event and so on. And then I was shouting, Good work, both of you. Good work, both. So it was like it was like uh, funny to see how these discourses are like competing also in me. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. of course we are all like if you have been doing sports and if you have been like participating in competition, like uh, we are brought up in this in this culture in this culture of you know like the performance is all that matters. So it is like hard to to i don't know to escape from this way mm -hmm. of thinking like yeah i i guess then we come to these questions about what is sport and and what is exercise like of course we have these cultures of exercise or or movement culture where there is no competition but like in in sport cultures that aspect of competition is something that makes it sport and not exercise mm. but then how we how we think about competition so what you mentioned about is competition everything that matters or how important is winning you can still compete but you don't have to be thinking that winning is the only thing that matters that's what you are telling me about this different way of organizing the competition and you are saying that there are other values that are probably more important in that cultural context than winning and and whether somebody won or somebody lost 
uh, lost their fight is probably not the key thing at the end mm. of the day of this yeah. kind of event. Exactly. Exactly, yes. And there are many scholars that are, you know, like writing that, uh, you know, we should maybe ditch the elite sports system altogether. I mean, if we are hoping for um, equality, uh, for gender equality in particular, because like there is no uh, way we can achieve that in this kind of like uh, competitive elite sports system. And um I'm not sure, like, uh, like uh, I definitely see the point and uh, I now come to also, like, uh, start valuing more the non-elite, non-performance, non-competition-orientated, like, uh, sport, cultures and, and events. But I think there are also, like, I think there are also, like, uh, meaningful experiences that one can take and uh, important life experiences and uh, and uh, lessons to learn within the elite sports system. And for me, mm. it is like uh, not just that some people do not have access to this. Like, for example, non-cisgender people are not uh, are denied access are sometimes denied access to this like elite sports system because of the uh, rigid like uh, binary gender categories. Yeah. So we can ditch it all together, but then, yeah, I don't know. I think it's something like <laughs> I sometimes compare it with the institution of marriage. Okay. Mm -hmm. So yeah. like uh, there are, you know, like some people believe that this is also an institution that we could ditch. <laughs> that, it, <laughs> that uh, yeah, it has like a, a history, let's say, of like controlling women's uh, sexuality or I don't know, like a, a history of like the state controlling, you know, people's lives and so on and so forth. So why yeah. would you even want to be part of this, you know, system. If you want to be, you know, like with someone, you can just like live together and that's all. So, but in the same time, so why, for example, like uh, LGBT people would even be interested in such a system? But in the same time, if this system, if this system exists, it cannot be that some people do not have access to this. It is just not just, you know, like if, since, since we have this system, everybody should have access to that. And that would then also mean to work to create these competitive or more elite sport cultures in the way that people of all genders have the possibility to, yeah, to take part. Yeah, exactly. So I think that, yeah. Exactly. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate the rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for 
forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.